0: Hello my friends. Get ready for this one. It's been nearly two years since Rory was on the show and I've wanted to get him back on ever since. This episode does not disappoint. It's absolutely phenomenal. This man is a complete force of nature. Uh, The episode just begins. There's no intro. There's no messing around and it also just ends because we ran over massively and made Rory late for his next meeting. So first off, thank you for coming on Rory. You are you're just phenomenal. I absolutely adore every time that we get to sit down. 2020's been the year of change, and human is far less rational and sophisticated than we might claim. If you combine these two together, you have the ideal breeding ground for a Rory episode. So today, expect to learn what Rory thinks about my new bear or bull game, his opinions on TikTok and OnlyFans, why sticking your genitals in a Dyson Airblade is a bad idea, how Rory would advise Boris, why credit card numbers are ridiculous, and much more. This is the sort of episode you need to listen to literally three or four times. If you enjoy it, please share it with a friend. Nothing would make me happier than for this show to continue to grow so that I can access more and more fantastic and fascinating humans and continue to deliver them directly into your ears. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've worn Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand, and fantastic fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop, and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free, pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap, plus you get your first month for free, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com/modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com join.whoop.com/modernwisdom slash modern wisdom. But for now, it's time for the force of nature that is Rory Sutherland. What do you think of TikTok?
1: Um, <clears throat> it's a thing I don't fully understand. There are certain things I always get confused because I generally try and make an effort to understand um, most things. And I don't find it that hard to understand things that other people find baffling, like Trump voting. And I always argue very simply about Trump voting, okay? Uh, look at it like this, okay? Imagine you work for a company And you can choose between two bosses, one of whom is slightly uncompetent, you know, borderline alcoholic, say, but really likes you. And another person who's highly competent and technocratic, but you suspect secretly despises you, okay? You're gonna vote for the first guy. Okay? Simple as that. Now, that's absolutely that's absolutely incomprehensible to people in the technocratic elite, because they've always had, you know, since, I don't know, Clinton, they've had highly academic kind of technocratic Ivy League professors who they see as essentially one of them. So the whole behavior is incomprehensible. TikTok, to me, it makes totally perfect sense. Uh, There are a few things I find hard to understand. TikTok, I I think I understand, Um, it's, Um, it's essentially video Twitter, isn't it? I mean, you know, but the the music aspect of it, I think, is really, really interesting because everybody, I think, wants to make a music video of their own life and by making it really easy and manageable. So it's always interesting to look at things like Twitter and TikTok through the lens of choice reduction or Facebook, for that matter, Um, in that MySpace gave you too much choice And people felt, okay, I've got too much control over length of content, style of content. I'm not a graphic designer. My page is going to end up looking like shit. And then Facebook comes along and basically imposes some sort of aesthetic constraint on you. So there's a limit to the number of variables you have to agonize over. And Twitter undoubtedly did that um uh, facebook did it relative to myspace and i think tiktok does that in, a, in 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 a different form uh by enabling music um but in a way that you can't cock up <laughs> um so i think I, I i i think there's something going on there in uh, a very interesting exercise in choice reduction by the way go online and try and buy a jaguar ipace and compare it to the choice architecture for the ford Mach-E, the, the mustang mach e or the Tesla. Now, interestingly, for products that are designed to be bought online, you don't want a huge amount of customization. Why? Because, because this is a bit like the paradox of choice. It is the paradox of choice. Uh, conventional logic says that the more choice you have, the greater the chance you have of optimizing your own utility, your own expected utility. Therefore, the happier you should be actually if you give people too many customization options they will almost end up almost certainly end up being unhappy with an element of their choice so the jaguar one for example i went in and just as an exercise i put in the top of the range base model and then three pages later i found myself asked the question well i wanted to pay 190 pounds for fog lamps and i kind of went i'm paying seventy thousand for a car i'm not going to fucking pay a, you know a, uh, 100 and, and the, the price of the fog lamps was immaterial. It was the fact that I was being made to pay for them, and eventually I became so resentful at the level of kind of. Uh, addition. Now, if you go to the Tesla or the Ford process, it's basically five colors, two kinds of wheels, two drivetrains. You know, um, I think with the Tesla, you can pay a thousand for the extra interior. With a Model Y, I think you pay a bit extra if you want the, the third row of seats. Well, fair enough. It's a degree of complexity. I'm not grumbling about that. But the extent to which the choice is enough to make you feel you're actually uh, getting what you want and not paying for things you don't want, but at the same time, it's manageable enough that you can actually go through it in a sequential process without feeling some sense of sort of seething confusion or resentment mm.
0: develop. And TikTok That's by yeah. constraining those those guardrails yeah. is is helping people to be less shit. There's only certain degrees of freedom that you have, and by reducing that, the the maximum amount of shitness that your content can be has been brought down. You've got it exactly.
1: Yeah, Perfect. Yeah. Hey, and we've actually, broken it. I, we understand yeah, it. Yeah. But it's always worth, that's probably 50% of my obsession, which is why I'm such a big believer in this ergodicity debate, which is all about the mathematics of optimization under multiplicative dynamics, okay? Right, okay. But a very simple way of looking at it, right? Okay, you've got a little formula that says one plus three, one plus three is four, or two plus two, or four plus naught, okay? Right, they all add up to four. And you can add one to either the one or the three. Well, it doesn't make any fucking difference, right? You can add the one to the one, or you can add the one to the three, and it'll now be five, all right? But under multiplicative dynamics, obviously, that's not the same rule, right? You add the one to the lower of the two numbers, because if you take... Obviously, if you have four times naught, and you add one till to four, you still have naught, right? What you want to do is add it to let's say, three times one, you want to add the one to the two, because that way you get six, okay? Rather than, say, naught or five or something, right? Now, the reason that makes a difference is that under multiplicative dynamics, and lots and lots of things in human life are kind of more like multiplication than they are addition. It strikes me as an essential, absurd Um, assumption of economics to assume that utility is additive, okay, that utility arises from a simple series of additive processes that net out. Strikes me as bonkers. Look at reputation. You know the joke that ends, you shag one sheep, right? Okay, we all know that joke, okay. You know, but do they call me Dimitri the boat builder? But do they call me Dimitri the church builder? But do they call me Dimitri the philanthropist? You shag one sheep, right? Now that shows that reputation is sort of multiplicative. If you hit a big fat zero and one, nobody nobody nets out Jimmy Savile, do they? Nobody goes, yeah, bit of a kiddie fiddler, but on the upside, he did do a lot of work for charity. Did some great work right?
0: as a philanthropist. Yeah, he did so. some
1: great work. You know, no, you don't, no, nobody nets out to me, Sam. Okay? Right? Okay. And, um, and so the point I'm making is lots of things in life are more like multiplication over time than they are addition.
0: Yeah. Uh, so I'm in Dubai and I've misplaced my passport. I fly home this Sunday. I found it this morning. So- but yeah. is it not stupid that I still need a physical paper object in my bag to move between countries? I could RFID it, we could facial recognition it, I could fingerprint it.
1: Um interesting. I, I, my own favored solution would be a weirdly British fudge which is you can retain a, a a physical passport for reassurance purposes. Um and that you probably take it with you, but you would also retain some other um uh, you know, uh, that in other words, passport-free travel might be possible. <clears throat> but there is an element to the physical, if you think about it, which is I mean, at one very simple level. What happens if your computer system goes down and immigration, right? Okay, so there are, you know, there are really, really, you know, uh, simple value. But I think there's also a value to print in kinds of ways that we don't anticipate. So I'll give you an example of this, right? If you get into a taxi in Dubai or anywhere else in the world and it says tariff and it tells you what the prices of taxis are at different times of the day and it's on a bit of paper that's laminated and stuck behind the taxi driver's back, as it were, I've got a reasonable amount of confidence, that that's the price he charges everybody, because patently he doesn't get out of the cab every time a new passenger <laughs> gets in and replace the tariff according to the expected wealth of the passenger. OK, now, if you have the price displayed on a digital screen, I've got the slight and not unwarranted fear. OK, <laughs> but, uh, I mean. I'll give you a lovely example of this. If you had a digital screen, how do I know he isn't applying the Gringo tourist tariff,
0: five-star you know, hotel tariff? Yeah, is
1: it, yeah. Well, I, I had that actually. Going to a five-star hotel in Seville. Um, actually, this was a. I think this was a paper tariff, not a. No, actually, there was no displayed tariff. I think, but suddenly this guy invents a twenty-euro supplemento aeropuerto. which I'm pretty sure didn't fucking exist because (laughs) nobody else I met had paid this thing. But he simply realised that I'm staying at this hotel. Uh, I'm almost certainly not paying for the hotel because I'm travelling on my own. Therefore I'm not going to risk getting beaten up to save WPP shareholders 20 euros. So eventually I paid his fucking supplemento aeropuerto and I went into the hotel. There's things like paper which are kind of set in stone. You know, um. Uh, the other thing is that it, you've got to remember that if you wanted to fake something in paper, you can do it. You can fake a passport, but you can't fake passports at massive scale, where there's possible some huge IT break-in <laughs> would allow you know it would suddenly allow two million people to get fake rights to travel to the UK.
0: This is the same you know, argument as to why uh, polls, why the American election is still done on paper, right?
1: Uh, yeah, you should do it on paper and instantly. I think the growth of postal voting is completely unacceptable. I'm with I'm with the Donald there, because when I was a kid in the UK, you had postal voting, but it was basically confined to people serving overseas in the military. It wasn't because I was on holiday, right, or people who are bedridden. In other words, you'd ask for a postal vote in the most exceptional circumstances. You know, I can remember driving very old people to the polling station uh, on polling day uh in you know was, actually this is with my parents driving you know when I was kind of ten or something they'd drive people who needed a lift to the polling station right now, this business of a um there are all sorts of things you could register other people once you've done that if you've helped someone register to vote uh If you're a member of a political party, uh, you then enjoy something called reciprocation bias, which is, given that these people filled in the paperwork for me, I'd feel like a bit of a twat not voting for them. There's the possibility of coercion within households where the dad or someone else basically gathers up all the votes and votes collectively, okay? Uh, There's the possibility simply of of non-privacy, that you could, in a coercive relationship, demand to see how the other person has voted. Um, and there's the, also the possibility of fraud at scale, uh, which, let's face it, the Americans don't don't have a perfect record of that, and, and that JFK didn't deserve to be elected in 1959, I don't think. I mean, the, you know, there was a whole lot of ballot stuffing in Chicago and places. and. Um, uh, I, I think that it's not a, it's not merely essential for the process to be honest; it needs to be seen to be honest, because the real point of uh, the real part of democracy is not that you get a consensus on what government you want; it's that people arrive a consensus around a sincere belief about what everybody else wants. Right? You know, it's not it's not a simple matter of aggregating preferences; it's getting the effective consensus of everybody, that this is the collective decision <laughs> writ large. And the second you start having weird electronic things, and the second you start to have postal voting, I think that disappears. And I, I think it's highly dangerous.
0: And we're seeing and that now, fact, right? We're seeing the fallout yeah. of that now.
1: Yeah, so actually, oddly, although I totally, I, I, you know, I think the result's genuine. I think Biden won. I'm not, I'm, not necessarily, I'm not necessarily disputing that. I think for the longer term, this practice of widespread postal voting um, is getting a bit concerning. I'd agree. Also, also, you could argue that this is a decision, OK, which merits a walk. Right? Maybe it's five minutes. I'm, I'm not saying it's three hours standing in a queue and all that kind of shit goes on where there's, you know, effectively voter suppression. And that's got to be clamped on as well. But this is a decision where I think it just merits a walk. Right. To make it a bit serious. OK, this isn't like voting for fucking X Factor or cake world or <laughs> dance get or whatever these flaming programs are it's a bit more serious than that and i think you should just get off your ass put some clothes on and go for a fucking walk you want some you, make- you
0: want some rituals some symbolism yeah. behind it pilgrimage just make to, a pilgrimage to the voting booth just just,
1: just to say this is slightly unusual you know this isn't just and you know there i mean you know um it, it's a really really important point i think that um uh that business of voting at home is not really the same because have you actually thought about it? I mean, the point about the walk, and this is the slight, you know, one slight downside over Zoom versus business travel, although I'm a huge Zoom advocate, is that when you travel to a meeting, you did have an hour to think about the meeting while you are in transit. And sometimes now you find yourself teleported into a meeting from a different continent with like one minute to prepare. And so, you know, I mean, that's that's another point I'd make, which is I just think the walk is good.
0: I get you it. You know, it says, OK,
1: I'm going here. I'm making a tolerable degree of effort. Um, uh, you know, I'm not just going to basically tick a tick a box and get it over with. And I think it deserves that level of solemnity. That's that's what I'd say.
0: Give me your thoughts on Dyson Airblade hand dryers versus paper towels. Oddly,
1: I quite like the air blade. I mean, I don't know whether they've been turned off because they're massive virus spreaders. I don't know what the effect is But of, they're just uh,
0: atomizing uh, whatever was on your hands, aren't they, and just pushing it as hmm. particulates into the air?
1: Um, I think... I never thought of it like that, but you're absolutely right. I mean, they do a good job of drying your hands, in fairness. I mean, that, that insight that actually you use sort of vortices and, and highly intense airflow uh as, as the device seems to be quite good it also strikes me as uh, what i really want to understand and there is a podcast about this is how you break into that bathroom market so do, did they attack paper towels did they attack the existing dryers because the installed base of the berkeley illinois world dryer corporation you know those things where you can with a twisty nozzle at the can front also do your hair, hair as
0: well for some reason yeah
1: yeah well, of course, the Dysons, you can also do your genitals, can't you, if you need to dry your genitals. Uh, so, you know, it's it's, it's horses for course. But you'd
0: have to. You'd somehow have to and slide in sideways. Yeah, you'd have to get in sideways, wouldn't you? It's
1: horrible <laughs> thought. Um, but, but actually, funnily enough, the Dyson, um, one thing with um, w- which is a use of a hairdryer, is about one time in a hundred when you have to give a talk and you have a minor chino accident when going to the loo before before your talk, which is, by the way, the most frightening bit of public speaking. And I had that happen once, only once, and the dryer was totally unsuited. No, in fact, it wasn't even a urine-related accident. It was a a washbasin-related accident where the washbasin catapulted a load of water into my groin, okay? And I was left having to go on stage in about five minutes. And there was a glorious natural solution which is when I came out of the loo in a total state wondering what to do like whether to turn my cardigan into a mini dress or something it actually started pouring with rain so I simply went outside the hotel stood in the rain for 5 minutes so I was all over soaked and then went back in again so I got away with it that wasn't even urine related I hasten to add it was simply very
0: fortunate but, from you But
1: that is one of the, that is one of the public speaker's greatest fears yeah the
0: final the final urination Prior to speaking, Mm. making sure that there's no dribble, making sure that there's no aggressive bathroom tap.
1: That's why there are no public speakers over sixty. I suspect
0: (laughs) (laughs) that prostate's going. What what are your um, What are your views on the numbers on credit cards?
1: Oh, I've made those fairly explicit. That's an extraordinary design failure. With one exception, actually, I'll 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 give American actually I won't show my card because then someone will nick things and start (laughs) shopping. With the exception of American Express who now sometimes print the number in big on the back, so it's readable, okay? They have a four-digit CVV, which is actually uh, properly printed on the front, not in some blurry ink on the signatures strip, okay? With the exception of American Express, credit cards were never really designed for the number to be read out at all, because when they first came out, it was the rumble strip, okay? And the fact that very few designers have rethought the design of the card, so the number is tolerably easy to read and the CVV number doesn't um, basically blur off. If you've ever been in in a slightly sweaty climate and you've just carried a credit card in your shirt pocket, the chance of the CVV number remaining legible is minuscule. And the, the the shiny things wear off a credit card so that at some occasions you have to hold it at a strange angle to a bright light to have any chance of reading it. But I mean, actually, one of the weird things about design is that one of the cases where functionalism loses out to aesthetics is undoubtedly caused by the fact that most designers are 20 and i I, just to be clear about this i really venerate design and designers so i'm not having a go but most designers are 27 years old and they're working with something like a 38 inch 4k monitor okay on their desk and what looks good on that is not necessarily readable in the real world because. You know, I mean, OK, I mean, I, I, I actually have to leave the, this pair of reading glasses um, on my desk at all times, because if I need to read a credit card number, or if I need to read a ready meal, ready meal um, uh, um, recipe instructions, you know, cooking instructions are unbelievably bad. I mean, you could, as I said on Twitter, I think, you know, you need an arc light and the Jodrell bank telescope to have a chance of actually reading them. And, you know, and, and so... These little things about usability in everyday life, the Don Norman, you know. To be honest, I, I vote for Don, Don Norman. Um, he's still alive, isn't he? He's about 80. But I'd vote for Don Norman for president, because I think a four-year term where the government was entirely dedicated to improving the design of everyday uh, of everyday activities and everyday things would would have been, something that that's Denmark, isn't it? The great thing about those Scandinavian countries, I mean, if you think about it, the climate shit, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, there are too many fucking trees. But the one upside is that everything's thought out. You know, Copenhagen Airport. You don't have a single moment of anxiety or or confusion. You know, and I, I think that's why they're so happy with large degrees of socialism, really. Which is, you don't mind paying a lot for government services if they're really competent.
0: Fair point. Taleb says that social science is bollocks and unfalsifiable and yet your career has been built on behavioral psychology insights I, 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 and yet you two are good friends how's that I work think,
1: okay i think social science is uh um an area of inquiry not an area for laying down rules okay uh the value i see to social science is largely that by having a far wider uh, a far wider how would i describe it um gamut of possible causal explanations for behavior if you think about it economics has this one which it calls utility and then you say what's utility and they say it's the thing that people try to maximize and you say what are people trying to maximize uh, their own expected utility and you go well hold on that's completely circular logic you might as well just say people do what people do okay now by actually trying to understand both in the lens of complexity theory Um, and with a wider conception of human motivation, trying to understand why people do the things they do. The most valuable contribution of social science will never be the contribution of laws (coughs) like physics. I'm always pleased there's a replication crisis because I said you'd never expect this shit to replicate all the time anyway. I've been business long enough to know that something that works in one context doesn't work in another, right? But you increase the solution space inordinately if you allow a greater range of possible explanations into your into your model of human behaviour. And I'd argue that it's actually, um, uh, as someone, Matt Ridley told me, this uh, biology. Someone said is the a science of exceptions, and I think social science is fine if you treat it as a science of exceptions. Everybody thinks that, but maybe it ain't so. Okay, and also. Um, it's a science of high levels of ambiguity, by the way, because in one context, people will do one thing. In a slightly different context, they'll behave completely differently. And understanding that is just um, science in terms of a form of inquiry and also science which is non-normative. Because what Talib gets annoyed with is saying, economic logic tell- says people should do this. A lot of people are doing that. Therefore, the people are wrong and we should nudge them to a point where they become more consistent with economic uh, theory. Okay, that's what gets Talib angry. My view, to be absolutely honest, is mostly the opposite, which is if people mostly do X after uh, a million years or so of evolution and economics thinks they should be doing Y, it's highly likely there's something wrong with economics, right? As John Kay, who is himself an economist, says, you know, it's highly unlikely that the human approach to, for example, risk or the human approach to ergodicity and and decision making. He said, as John Kay said, it's highly likely we would have evolved to a state where we got it a bit, you know, nearly right, but not quite right. It's as if, it's as if everybody involved with one leg shorter than the other, right? The the idea that there are these persistent irrationalities and that you continue to define them as irrationalities is too comfortable an assumption. You're too you, you're giving your model far too much credence. If you start blaming the person before you start blaming the model, I like it. And so so I, I have this discussion, very simple discussion, okay? Which is um, uh, how do you get younger people to take out pensions? And I said, yeah, there are loads of ways you can get younger people to save more. And I said, A, probably don't call it a pension because they associate it with, you know, someone, actually they don't associate it with a 55 year old, they associate it with a 70 year old, right? But B, when young people, if you want them to pay into a pension, the first amount has to be recoverable. You don't know enough about the future to say, well, that money, I won't be needing that until I'm 55. No one aged 23 can say that, okay? christ knows what could happen you know anything could happen but the second thing i said is i said yeah you could definitely improve the rate to which young people save in pensions and then the second thing i said is but never expect the amount young people save in pensions to the amount that economists think they should save in pensions and they said why is that i said because when you're 27 finding a high-quality life partner is probably more important than saving for retirement. And I said I'm willing to bet if you go on Tinder, okay, there's nobody under 50 on Tinder talking about their pension,
0: right? (laughs) Are there people over 50 talking about their pension on Tinder? I would
1: guess if you're 70 and you're trying to pull a
0: 58-year-old, it might be. You You put your pension in your bio.
1: You might put your. I, I have no clue. I mean, I, you know, I got married before the stuff came along. Yeah, but uh, you might, you know, I, I don't know if you're, you know, if you're trying to pull a spring chicken of sixty-two <laughs> and you were seventy-one, maybe, maybe you would talk
0: about. I got um, I got a really interesting insight from Rob Henderson on this show. He taught me a few very, very fun things about Tinder. First thing being that you can ten x your popularity on Tinder in terms of right swipes by putting a master's level education as opposed to a bachelor's level education in your bio if you're a man. And the 80-20 mm. Pareto principle also works on Tinder. The bottom 80% of men are competing for the bottom 20% of women, and the top 80% of women are competing for the top 20% of men. That's out of uh, Datanomics, which was a data science uh, analysis done of, of dating trends.
1: It's a horrible thing to say, but most of a lot of what is nasty in society, um, like excessive consumerism and uh, you know excessive spend on luxury goods and signalling, could probably re- be reduced if women were actually less selective about who they.
0: Slept with. Sadly, look, girls, just just drop the standards a little bit, and everything will be fine. Yeah, everything, right. Everything, everything. Right. right, we're going to play Rory. Right. We're going to play a game. We're going to play a game.
1: And argued, and, 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 and this was a pretty rich guy. Um, he said, um, apart from the very funny joke when um, uh, somebody asked a Russian what would have happened if uh, 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 Mr. Khrushchev had been shot instead of Mr. Kennedy, and the Russian replied, I don't think Aristotle and Assis would have married Mrs. Khrushchev. <laughs> um, but um, uh, apart from that joke, Assis actually said, he said, if there were no women in the wor- world, all the money would be worthless. Um and so there's there's elements so, so it's totally 8020 that you said that essentially the 80% of of least desirable men are competing for the 20% of least desirable women
0: yeah and then the converse as well which is just i mean hypergamy is a hell of a drug
1: that's incredibly extreme, but it's plausible. It's totally plausible. Yeah. And then the other, th- the other thing is, but master's degree pays off for men, but not for women.
0: Yeah, because women are signalling off. They, very few women want to date a man who is not richer than them and, uh, sorry, or not more educated than them. They'll take a man who's perhaps not as rich as them if he's incredibly clever, yeah. and that's yeah. presumably it, but, l- working but, 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 on a trajectory.
1: Being a hedge fund manager married to a university professor, female hedge fund manager married to a male university professor, or novelist, if he's reasonably successful, yeah. you know, yeah. And yeah. tolerably successful, or artist would be okay, okay? Um, whereas it would be much more difficult if you were doing a less – it's got to be some degree of scarcity signalling. And actually, the extent to which we use the educational system to signal our possession of scarce resources is one of the biggest grotesqueries uh, in 21st century life. So the, the university, the higher education, has become a luxury goods industry. Essentially, it's Prada. You know, it's uh, you know, it's Ferrari. It's horrible. Well, I mean, I, I know that. Seems, I know that seems weird, but when I went to university. I didn't, you know, I saw it as something to do because I was quite interested in shit. I didn't know. But I I genuinely say this. Okay, this is at Cambridge University in 1987. No one discussed what job they wanted to do until the third year. The third year, beginning of the third year, you actually had to put in some applications for shit. Nobody discussed that shit at all. Year one and two. Nobody was talking about. I didn't know if someone had said, I want to work in banking. I go, why do you want to sit behind a glass screen with a fucking pen on a chain? Right. No, but uh, this is 19. This is not this is this is less than a lifetime ago. OK, now, OK, you know, we acknowledge the fact that if you went to, you know, Oxbridge or you went to a Russell Group University, your employment, certainly you you thought that your chances of being unemployed were quite low. That, that was certainly true in the late 80s. But there wasn't this hyper competition. That was going on. Nobody said, you know, an MPhil is the new you know is the new ba or it's a pull that. it's a just B. a
0: pulling strategy that's all it is it's just a it's just a dating strategy
1: get your MPhil well,
0: up up your tinder rating fine yes
1: yeah. this is kind of scary isn't it uh, yeah
0: right we're gonna but play apply, rory doesn't we're gonna play,
1: apply, we're play do, are, are men bothered that much about the educational level of women to the same extent so it does all the look, earning
0: power it doesn't look that way no um a man uh, the, the problem is, right, that women are the gatekeepers to sex. Men are always going to be the sexual protagonists. And given that, for the most part, we all have that friend who would take whatever he can get. And I think that that kind of shows out in more than just physical characteristics as well. Plus, there's a classic dynamic of resource acquisition and kind of resource giver from the <coughs> me- the, the male side, right? It's very rare to find a man who wants, despite what my Instagram bio says, not many men want to be a trophy husband. Um, it just no. seems emasculating and all the rest of it. Right, we're gonna play a game, Roy, we're gonna play a game. It's called Bull or Bear. And you're going. Right. I'm, I'm gonna give you uh, some different things and you're gonna tell me whether you're bullish or bearish about it and a, a little bit of an explanation why. Fabulous. QR code menus.
1: What? What for track and trace or for reading for, the menu? For
0: being in a restaurant, QR code menus. Bare. Bear. Good. Uh, adds, adds a completely unnecessary level of complexity
1: and means. What restaurant has ever given you a menu that's two inches wide and four <laughs> inches deep? For fuck's sake.
0: It's all the rage to buy out here, and there's a, new, a number of different ways. Do you have it in a single feed, like an infinite scroll thing? Do you have it across multiple tabs? Do you have photos of the food? If you have photos of the food, you've got to scroll for longer. Are you, do you allow people to order on the... Browser? Do you allow? Do you have to wave the waiter over? It's very very complex. There are two useful complex.
1: things about it. One, there is a heuristic that only fast food joints have photographs of food for some reason. Okay. Now, logically, you'd always have photographs of food on the menu, okay, to prevent you ordering something that you hated the look of when it arrived. But there's a heuristic that. Menus are textual in upmarket joints. It, you know, it's okay for KFC to have a photo, it's okay for McDonald's to have a photo, uh, but you don't do that at you know the Manoir Cat Saison right here. And so the QR code menu would allow you to look at photographs. I would also argue that you might um but then once you edit a large group of people, this doesn't really work. I mean the QR code menu in a large group of people is going to be a flaming disaster because all it takes is one person to be technologically incompetent, in the whole process of ordering.
0: You've got a big bottleneck right. there. Right. Next okay. next bull or bear. Okay. Next yeah. next bull or bear. Sex robots. Right. Um
1: That comes with me slightly in the category of things like anti-masking, which I don't fully understand. Um and um but I think, to some degree, one has to be short term. I think, I think the bass diffusion curve is going to reach a, a ceiling fairly low because, apart from where do I put the thing? My cleaning lady is going to find it, right? Right? Okay. I mean, unless someone invents some really clever way in which, right? I mean, my cleaning lady's pretty tolerant. You know, I occasionally walk around the place in my underpants, but I think she'd draw the line in a sex robot.
0: Well, that was the advantage of the fleshlight, wasn't it? That the fleshlight could be hidden away as a flashlight. That was the whole point of it. But shy of being able to tumble your sex doll up into a suitcase, which also, if your cleaning lady finds, is going to cause more downstream complications.
1: Yeah, I mean grief you know no I, I i'm gonna say i'm bullish but but i don't think i i think it's going to reach an tote of market penetration which is an awful word to use in the context um you know at around the kind of 10 10 15 level i don't i don't i don't think I, I don't think i'll ever have a sex robot well I, no I'll never say that but it strikes me as slightly implausible
0: okay uh, uh, next one smoking and vaping uh
1: a, a Long-term, bearish on uh, smoking, bullish on vaping, I think. One of my most uh, heinous views is I think there are benefits to nicotine, uh, mental and other benefits, which we will eventually acknowledge if people stop being quite so kind of manichaean about everything. Uh, it isn't the nicotine that's harmful about smoking; it's the other shit. That's what's unusual. In alcohol, it's the alcohol that's the problem. The bit that gives you the fun is also the problem. In smoking, the bit that gives you the whatever mental, you know, c- uh, capacity it is, is isn't the thing that does most of the harm.
0: Got you. Uh, fast fashion. So I'm, I'm
1: very. I'm actually very bullish on nicotine.
0: Yeah, uh, bullish I on think... nicotine overall. It's the delivery mechanism yeah. that's the problem. Yeah. Uh, So fast fashion, basically, will it become unfashionable to wear fast fashion because it kills polar bears and sweatshop workers, or does it not matter when it's four pounds a skirt?
1: Uh, I hate to say this, but um, uh, the the tragedy of fast fashion um, is that um, – this is the tragedy of fast fashion, okay. Logical mid-market fashion – you know, what you might call Marks and Spencer's clothing, or Jaeger's just gone into administration. That's pretty upmarket, but it's mid-market, upmarket, mid-market, okay? The problem they have is you get an endorphin rush from a bargain and you get an endorphin rush from um, an extravagance, but you don't get an endorphin rush from mid-market retail. So I always have this problem that something I can wear once that costs a tenner, I'm getting quite a lot of kick for not much money, right? Uh, you know, if you go on, I, I'm, I'm supposed to be. I've started buying things from ASOS now, I don't treat them as fast fashion, but I've started buying things like trousers because no one cares about trousers, do they, for whatever reason. It's the worst area for, other than jeans, where some people buy those really weird things with a odd pattern on the arse. Okay, other than sort of, and I don't own any denim. I, I'm a total denim denier. Very
0: bearish on denim.
1: I, I don't. No, I'm not bearish because it seems to be. It's it's very Lindy, as Taleb would say. Denim, it's you know, very it's been windy. around for a long time, it's and it's survived a hell of a lot of you know changes in fashion. I just don't understand it as a fabric. Why would I wear an uncomfortable? you know, fabric that's not, you know, that fades unpleasantly. What's the trouser of d- choice
0: then? Is it sort of more of a chino, like a, a comfortable chino material?
1: Yeah, as you get older, of course, the elastic waistband uh, uh, um, uh, suddenly arouses extraordinary appeal. No, but, I mean, of course, under video conferencing conditions, um, our freedom in the trouser department has gone up massively because uh, I, I, I've got a theory that if women didn't exist and if social convention didn't exist, um, most British men would wear shorts every day.
0: That's my life. That's what my life is yeah. like because I'm not accountable to people for the way that I dress. Right, no. final, final one. OnlyFans, bull or bear? Uh, no, no, uh, uh, only OnlyFans. Only so it's the direct to consumer. Adult actress or actor platform, which is blowing up quite a lot in America at the moment. So it's decentralised the earning potential for either amateur or professional actors and actresses. I'm not sure if you've seen this. If you haven't, then I've I'm, I'm just introduced you to OnlyFans. in the adult
1: film industry.
0: Kind of. It's a little bit like. It's a little bit like Patreon, but yeah. but it's for people that do porny stuff.
1: Um. Very interesting. You have seen that guy from Bolton who rings up the woman on Babe, whatever it is, Babe, Camp, and what asks biscuits, where she got what her biscuits.
0: What biscuits you drinking? Yeah, what biscuits are you eating?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have to. Say, I, find, I find those inter- <laughs> unbelievably funny. I, I love, I love that kind of context. Um, <laughs> I, I once, when I was a student, I went to see Emmanuel at the local cinema in, in, in uh, around the corner because it was on at ten o'clock at night. We were all very bored. And my friend, who's a massive civil aviation fan, you may remember that Emmanuel has sex on the plane as she flies out to, where the hell is it? It's somewhere in Southeast Asia, isn't it? And um, uh, my friend was absolutely incensed because he said it's completely the wrong sound
0: effect for a Boeing 747. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so for as long as these yeah, actors and actresses of, can the keep of the quality The bit of porn right. I
1: really enjoy, the bit of porn I re- I don't like porn, actually, very much. I mean, I mean, I can't claim that I don't watch it ever because that would be ridiculous. Everybody's had a look, right? But I find the bits of porn where no sex is taking place vaguely interesting because here you can see the mental workings of someone who has to contrive a backstory, okay? And that's narrative and it's interesting. The actual act itself is actually unbelievably repetitive and tedious
0: well it would be like um, watching it would be exactly the same as getting cristiano ronaldo and saying right mate before you go out to play football what i really want to see you do is have a crack at this particular orchestral piece on the violin and then bake me a cake and i'm going to watch yes. you try and do both of those things and then you can go and crack on with the stuff that you're capable at
1: um, the onlyism is obviously good news because it reduces the problem I'd love to know more about the economics of the adult entertainment industry, as I think they call themselves. Because obviously, they were if you think about it, they were advanced in terms of payment mechanisms uh, online. Uh, they were hugely advanced in terms of online video streaming. And now what this is, is effectively they were online advanced in terms of video conferencing. Okay. So they generally discover technologies about 10 years before businesses do.
0: This decentralized um, nature is absolutely insane. I had both a, a porn star who has been a long time in the adult industry and now gone to this decentralized model and also a girl who started the UK's version of OnlyFans and generated £10 million of revenue in 16 months. So this... Particular model is uh, th- there's a lot to be said about it, but yeah, I will. I'll send you. I'll send you some very PC links where you can have a look at at some some data that I've got about that. Um, next so, uh,
1: thing, it is in fact good because it prevents the caruso
0: effect. Although there was never the Caruso that effect.
1: Of- the Caruso effect is what happened. So, before the gramophone came along, okay, you could make a reasonable living as the fifth best operatic tenor in Denmark because, you know, there were enough opera houses for you, you know, and occasionally the best two op- operatic tenors were engaged or ill or went down with a cold and you got to sing a bit and you could actually survive. Caruso came along, it's a winner takes all effect for the gramophone, okay, and everybody wanted Caruso. Not necessarily because he was the best person of the time, but simply because he was the most famous. So you get these Matthew effects, positive feedback effects. And so Caruso ends up a millionaire, and the fifth-best operatic tenor in Denmark
0: loses his job, Starts effectively. sweeping the streets. So, whatever, yeah.
1: so there is something really, really interesting, because the same thing, not only in porn, the same thing will happen in the public speaking industry. How will it go? Will you have a Caruso effect? where basically, if you're Tony Blair, you get a million quid to appear on Zoom, and if you're me, you get two pounds 57, you know? Or, or will it go the opposite way, which is OnlyFans, where I'm supported in my retirement on Patreon, occasionally appearing and talking to people about behavioral science. Now, I'll tell you one really important thing, by the way, in terms of, this is the most, Zoom is as important as the internet, in terms of economic effects, okay? Both good and bad, and they'll be complex, But I really believe that and I'll tell you one very simple reason why the washing machine was possibly more important than the Internet because it allowed women to enter the workforce. Okay, when you took away the drudgery of maintaining a middle class home, it massively increased the the, the number of people who could enter the workforce. the only reason I think most people retire from white collar jobs is because they're sick of commuting. It's not because they're sick of work. I mean, accountants, implausible as it may seem, really like doing accountancy, right? Because they're good at it. And actually, a 63 year old accountant's probably pretty damn good, right? Okay. The only reason they retire is because work uh, not because they don't like work, but w- the opportunity cost of work, which is if you have to be at a specific place at a specific time and you have to travel to get there, that price is too high. It's not the time you spend working. it's the fact that you can't retire to the south of France, you can't go on a golfing holiday in you know March when the flights are cheap. It's all that shit that causes people to retire. It's not the fact they don't like work.
0: What's the biggest lesson that you've learned from observing 2020?
1: Um, Oh, undoubtedly network effects. The fact that in order for Zoom, which is, when you think about it, blindingly fucking obvious as a business technology, the fact that it took everybody to be forced to use it at the same time before its value became apparent shows actually an extraordinary lack of vision in our adoption of technology. So in my defense, I'd mandated Zoom Fridays for my team before the pandemic even hit, because I said, look, this is a synchronous technology. Therefore, we all have to um, stay home on the same day of the week in order to make use of it. And a year and a half ago, we'd started discovering really weird things like you can win business over Zoom easy. Can't win business over email. You've got to have a meeting. OK, but over Zoom, you can actually pick up business. You can you can deliver business over Zoom, obviously. You can't deliver. No one's going to pay you a five-figure sum to write a deck and then email it to them, right? OK, so in the previous world, you'd have to fly. Now, you know, uh, that makes you a kind of joint venture with British Airways. You know, if, if your clients, if you're, you know, if you're my age and you're not very keen on going in economy and, uh, you know, the client's on another continent, That essentially means that, you know, half your profits going in travel costs, as it were. And so there's something very, very interesting about this. And also because business business exchange, there was no normal mode. Other than going to the pub after a meeting or going out for a meal, there was no informal means of business to business communication. Okay. So businesses themselves were optimized around coffee shops and corridors where you had Blackboards, so people could enjoy serendipitous encounters when you look at b2b communication it was either incredibly cold and textual it was like email or a text message or a powerpoint deck or a you know or a spreadsheet more likely okay or it was face to face which was hugely expensive and time consuming and you could only face doing three of those a week and what what it was a bit like having a weird world where you had like limousines and you had buses but you had nothing in between You know what I mean? You didn't have private cars. And this, the fact that business communication has become, my volume of email has halved, and most of my email now is just about arranging Zoom calls. And Marshall McLuhan would say, Zoom is a warm or hot form of communication, whereas other than face-to-face, all the other business forms of communication were cold. So this actually, cha- I, I find it much better because you can actually go off at a tangent on a Zoom call. It makes things much less left-brained. And I think I think it's a huge gift.
0: Good. Uh, Boris calls you up tomorrow and says, Rory, mate, I'm struggling here. Behaviourally, how can we improve the public's view of COVID restrictions? What do you say? I
1: don't know yet, and I'm still puzzling because... I think it's possible to keep the disease in abeyance with some very simple heuristic rules, which obey we they need to be visible in their breaking. So it needs to be visible when people break them. OK,
0: what's that mean? What like
1: um, I'm generally pro mask wearing on the grounds that it seems to make sense. And I also believe the theory of Monica Gandhi, that there's a certain um, variolation effect to mask wearing, which is if you become minorly infected with a small dose of COVID, the likely outcome is not that you become severely ill, it's that you become immune with minor ill effects. So I think masks work twice, not just by preventing infection, but by reducing the initial dose. Um, But bear in mind, this is not a a universally held belief, and I'll probably get kicked off Twitter if I say it. I'm not sure. Uh, But I I, I genuinely believe I think there might be a double win (laughs) uh, in that respect. I also think masks benefit other people as well as you. So there's a double win in that sense. So if you look at those dimensions, masks might be working in eight different ways rather than just one.
0: And by doing that, it's quite obvious when someone breaks it, right? My neighbour in Fulham, her
1: her, her next her upstairs neighbour in the flat above, basically held a party for eight people uh, the night before last. Now, here's an awkward thing in a country like Britain. What do you do? You don't dob on your neighbour, OK? Right? It's, this, isn't, this isn't like East Germany. And even she, who doesn't like her neighbour very much, goes, OK, my relationship would be impossible if I were known to have dobbed on my neighbour and rung the police. Um, So you need some degree of voluntary compliance. And among the young, that's disproportionately difficult, because they don't, you know, they don't really perceive much risk. And I don't know quite what to do there. But I think it'd be possible to close certain mass events, and to have um, some sort of We don't know the extent to which private parties are actually causing the hotspots, and I think it might be quite high. So maybe what you want to do is get people out—is actually ban parties at home and open pubs under under stringent conditions,
0: Mm.
1: Um, or create outdoor spaces. Um, It looks like the rate of outdoor transmission is pretty tiny, to be honest. Um, There are also things about ventilation which nobody's investigated. There are also things about sprays and ultraviolet light which nobody seems to have investigated. So I think the mask is important because it acts at the bottleneck of transmission, okay, which is the mouth and nose. Um, We don't seem to have the level of contact-based transmission that people anticipated either, do we? And by which I mean we would have noticed if Postman had started getting very ill or something like that. But uh, I—it's a really interesting question, and I I think we should look at ventilation. I think we should look at uh, at sprays and um, viricides, and also air filters uh, indoors. And we should also look um, uh, uh, at—you know—obviously masks, ventilation, and ultraviolet light, and other other uh, viricidal things. So not just the mask. It seems a bit weird that we focus purely on hand washing and, and masks and haven't investigated, uh, you know, sprays which can kill viruses quite effectively. Uh, what, else, what else? I mean, the, the, I'm a bit sympathetic with the government, and the reason for that is the only people who seem to know exactly what we should have done are all working in journalism. Um, you know, journalists seem to have. A ludicrous idea about how simple this is, and how uh, you know it was obvious we should have locked down early. Actually, it looked like the rate of infection was already falling before lockdown was imposed, simply because of voluntary measures, for instance. And in London and places, the absence of tourism, you see, would have been highly significant. So I mean, you know, it's incredibly difficult. What it what this shows. So what this shows in total is that we're used to the pretense of knowing what we're doing. Okay. now, I don't think we know what we're doing most of the time, but most of the time we have a discipline like economics, which allows us to pretend we know what's going on. And so we can post-rationalise lots of outcomes. And that allows the kind of scientistic brigade to become overconfident. This is genuinely a case where, okay, we will know in about two years' time what we should have done. In in defence of any government, I mean the Belgian government, the French government, the Irish government, right? I mean, there may be things like Germany had a very bad flu season, okay? The UK didn't. Now, those things can actually affect susceptibility going forward. So we look at the Germans and we naturally assume that's because of, you know, it's like racism, actually, that because they're highly competent. But the Austrians similarly had, uh, you know, very, very um, light. Switzerland, weirdly, has now become very severe in the second wave, okay? So... First of all, we often make total generalisations about countries and, and based on national stereotypes. You know, uh, where we—I no I mean, actually, I think Greece had a fairly light COVID thing, but no, Greeks are incredibly bright people. But nobody ever says we should look at the Greek model, okay? Because that's just not what you do. Um, a very, very good medics actually. Uh, Generally, So so one of the interesting things is that there's an awful lot of national stereotyping going on and there's an awful lot of generalization going on. We're typically looking at things at a national level, which may not even be the helpful way to look at things at all. Maybe we should have localized more. But I I, I just want to know if anyone has got a solution to that fact of how you stop your neighbor having your younger neighbor having a party under lockdown without dobbing them to the cops. uh, strikes me as a really interesting question. Now, in the first phase of lockdown, you can do that because simple social stigma would be enough, but that's getting increasingly difficult. And I, I, and I genuinely don't, I, I mean, my my view is that, you know, at some point we'll, we'll, we'll know what we should have done. Probably, it might even be a year and a half, two years. Because there are really weird things. Why is Switzerland having a big second wave suddenly? Um, uh, you notice huge discrepancy between, say, Oman and the United Arab Emirates. Um, Yeah, certain, certain countries. New Zealand, of course, had the benefit of getting it late. And it's a bloody island in the middle of nowhere. So we're going, isn't the New Zealand government brilliant? Well, yeah, they they are brilliant. OK, they did it very well, but they had opportunities which other people didn't. Um, So it's kind of, you know, it's kind of complex. The other thing, by the way, is that if you lock down, uh, it's worth remembering that if you lock down too soon and People don't have enough time to prepare for it, you end up with a lot of people breaking the rules, right? You know, if you basically said, right, we're locking down at midnight tonight, you would have ended up with mayhem on the roads with everybody who was at their London place trying to get to their holiday home, everybody who was separated from their spouse trying to get back home. You know, so, at some point, you have to actually have a delay for behavioral reasons, not for epidemiological reasons, yeah so this shit is not fucking easy because you're at the intersection between ethics. I mean I think we should have done more deliberate infection experiments actually on the young not not i mean not not at the very early stages but 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 I, I don't think I, you know I think some some challenge trials um you know a few months ago would have made sense actually to understand more about the because the, the, we know because it's asymptomatic for the early stages. We know very little about the early stages of development and what separates out a, 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 an illness with severe outcomes to an illness with trivial outcomes.
0: Why do you think people are prepared to pay 10 times or 100 times the price of a book for a course on the same subject? I've been fascinated by this recently. So a lot of inter, internet Don't entrepreneurs are creating a course of – how to have the perfect this or how to do your how, – how, how to do habit setting and goal setting is a very popular online course where people are prepared to charge 100, 200, 300 pounds and add a community on the side, and yet you can get Atomic Habits by James Clear for, for a tenor.
1: <coughs> uh, yeah, I, um, it's a bit of an espresso effect, I suspect, because when you frame something in the field of education – I mean, I can remember at work occasionally I'd buy a book for the team or, you know, a a behavioural science book, and I'd claim it out of the training budget. That was considered actually a bit of, you know, I'm not sure you can do that. I said, it's a book, it's fucking training, right? Why is it okay to claim for some person to come in and talk to us all, but it's not okay to buy, buy everybody a
0: book? Potentially from the person who was giving the talk, even.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And there'll be more in there. But it's not like when I wrote, as far as I know, when I wrote my book, I was not aware of saying, well, I'm going to hold back on these five things because they're far more monetizable if I give a talk or a training course. It's not like you hold back in your book. You give everything, you put everything into your book you possibly can and hope it's enough to warrant the length, which it rarely is. I mean, a hell of a lot of books, to be honest, tail off towards the end. You know, there's a bit of barrel scraping going on to get it across the 80,000 word mark, right? Um, but, I, yeah, I've never understood that, to be absolutely honest. Um, have you noticed it? Um, Do
0: you know the, the particular sort of effect that I'm talking synch- about? Here?
1: Synchronicity has a value. The fact that we're doing something along, other, along with other people seems to have a value that we apportion some emotional value to, the fact that we're doing something with other people. Um, the part of it is that the Richard Thaler experiment about beer, you know what I mean? Where he said, you're on a beach, you've been parched, you're with him. It's a very famous experiment in behavioral science. And um, you're on a beer, you're on a beach, you're getting pretty thirsty because you've been on a hot beach for the last three hours. And your mate says, okay, I've noticed a place along the beach that sells chilled bottles of Heineken, right? Okay, tell me how much you're willing to pay for a bottle of refrigerated Heineken. And if the price is below your maximum willingness to pay, okay, I'll buy you a bottle and bring it back. Right now, the point about the along the beach is that you're not enjoying the ambiance of the place selling it. If you say shack. Selling chilled Heineken. This is in the 1990s or or earlier, might have been the 80s. People were willing to pay something like $1.59 for a bottle of chilled beer. If you describe the place as a boutique hotel, they actually um, were prepared to pay $2.40 or something like this. Bear in mind, you've got to adjust for inflation. So it's like $5 or $2.80 or something like that, you know. Now, what's weird about that, the utility they derive from the consumption of the beer, which is the branded beer and refrigerate in both cases, is identical. But they accept that given the overheads of a boutique hotel relative to the overheads of a shack, you should be prepared to pay more. So there may be a degree of labor component to it, which is, look, we all know that the marginal cost of a book is zero. Um, Whereas, okay, this course is actually involving effort on your part and is taking up your time.
0: Mm. so my my thought on it the reason that i propose people are prepared to pay so much more 10 times 100 times the price of a book for a course that achieves the same thing is that people are concerned with outcomes rather than Uh. rather than they are with the process of going through it if you were to tell me or tell anyone
1: so what you're saying is the course gives you a bit of paper that says you
0: completed the course no more that because you can't put on your cv i've read i read, book, I, read I read alchemy no it's more that um what people read specifically in the uh, self-development or non-fiction world the reason they read partly is for the enjoyment of reading the book but more so for the outcome and the new life that they think they're going to be able to achieve with the insights from rory sutherland's alchemy or james clear's <coughs> atomic habits and by taking the course what I think that they presume they're going to achieve is more likely, more compliant, more effective outcomes. So you're paying for the new world that you're going to enter. And the presumption is that by taking the course, your outcomes are more assured.
1: Is that because, I mean, it might be that you're paying for the course as a commitment device.
0: Perhaps, yeah. Costly.
1: Which is that you really will fill it. I mean, because I was talking about this with Gusto, which is that we there's, uh, uh, the classic example I give is my financial advisor. You know, I pay him a whole shed load of cash for stuff I could theoretically do myself. But I'm realistic enough to know that I probably won't do it left to my own devices. If you, my wife starts talking to me about my pension, I basically go into a narcolectic coma, OK, out of sheer tedium after about five seconds whereas if this bloke comes around and i paid him a shed load of cash i feel i really do have to act on what he's done so we might be actually spending the money to signal to ourselves
0: that might be another part of it as well last thing uh, last, yeah. uh, last 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 question rory uh, you say to be brilliant you have to be irrational what's that mean
1: oh that you that nearly all really just to give an example from the field of entrepreneurialism Nearly all disproportionately successful businesses are disproportionately successful not despite of, but because of some seemingly irrational or nonsensical component in their offering. So um, the argument would be that um, most people have a post-rationalised sense-making narrative of how a business works and what's important okay which is almost certainly wrong in some dimensions and so if you, the example I was give, the most extreme case of this is Dyson, okay? If, and I admit this of myself, that if James Dyson had come to me in the 1980s or ni- 1990s, and he said, I think there's a market for a £700 vacuum cleaner, <laughs> okay? I would have said, well, let's have a look at the market, shall we, and do a bit of market scoping, and let's do a bit of market research. And if I'd asked people, would you pay £700 for a vacuum cleaner, answers would have varied between, I don't think so, to fuck off. Um, and um, if I'd looked at the existing vacuum cleaner market, I would have seen that Miele was, it was a grudge purchase. It was a distress purchase. Nobody enjoyed buying a vacuum cleaner. You know, you had a Miele at around 250 quid. You probably had a Henry at around 80 or 100 or 110 or whatever they are. It maybe may the Miele stretched to 300, but you basically go, Okay, Jim, look, mate, don't give up the day job. And then if James had turned back to you and said, but wait, you haven't heard about my 400 pound hairdryer, you would have had him escorted out of the building. Okay. And so what I'm saying is that um, conventional marketing approaches probably encourage us to produce products that are kind of okay. But the point is, people have already solved, people aren't interested in okay because they've already solved the problems that okay solves. What they haven't solved is the problems that weird solves. And so, you know, you know, the, the Uber map is an example of what I call psychologic. It's ingenious because it doesn't increase the speed at which your car turns up, but it massively reduces the pain we experience in uncertainty while waiting for it to arrive. You know, and I think, uh, you know, there are huge, huge things you could do. Um, huge things you could do which would effectively make it possible. Um, we don't have metrics for the human emotions. And so we're trying to improve human emotional state by optimising things which don't really correlate neatly at all. You know, we're trying to optimise speed and time and cost and distance and all these things. It's like HS2. Um, right we 're trying to optimize an engineering problem as though it will solve a human emotional problem or behavioral problem, but we don 't have metrics for the things that matter we don 't have a metric for uncertainty we don 't have met- we 're not even measuring with high speed two the end to end journey right because i 've made the point repeatedly that you could increase enormously reduce the the journey time from London to Manchester. Not by actually making the train faster, but by having a service where if I've booked a pre-booked ticket to Manchester and there are empty seats on the train 20 and 40 minutes beforehand, I can book one of the earlier tickets, right? If you let me do that, okay, you can reduce the journey time to Manchester and increase capacity because it's better yield management. It's better load balancing of journeys. If you allow people to go early, don't let people go later. If you miss your train, stuff, stuff it. You can pay more. A lot, you know, you pay full fare. But if you said actually, that you know, are 50 empty seats in first class, and the train that leaves 40 minutes before your train, if you pay us a fiver, you can jump on one of those, right? Virgin makes money. I save journey time hanging around Burger King for 40 minutes, and you know, at Euston, right? Everybody wins. Costs five hundred thousand to develop the app. Instead, they're spending sixty billion on the sodding trains because they're measuring the wrong bloody things. I like the time on the train. Most Mancunians don't want high-speed, too, because they're fine with things as they are. And the reason is that most people don't travel to London often enough that a, you know, a, let's say, a sort of, I don't know what it is, I guess it's a 40% reduction in journey time or a 30% reduction in journey time, just doesn't make that much fucking difference.
0: The point that you made about Uber, it's one that I've heard you make before. Have you heard of Anticipation?
1: Now, teleo is as in teleological.
0: Yes, correct. So it's
1: goal-based anticipation, and we what, we find it painful, do
0: we? Yeah, so very much as you know about uh, the way that Uber works or the way that uh, Disneyland works, where they say 10 minutes from this point, 5 minutes from this point, it's not necessarily about the weight, it's about the ability to anticipate. But teleo anticipation was a, a term coined by Hans Volkart Ulmer to describe our knowledge of how an eventual end point influences the entirety of the experience. And he used endurance sports as the medium, <coughs> So researchers in the field have probed what happens when you hide the finish line, surreptitiously move it or take it away entirely. So there's this very famous backyard race, which you might be familiar with, where uh, they have to run 4.16 miles every hour, which is like 100 hundred miles per 24 hours. But the point is that they just keep going until everybody stops, until the last person is standing. So there's no end to this endurance event. They just run this loop and run this loop and run this loop. Is that us running over, Rory? Is that your next? I think goal that is. Uh, that's
1: probably so. there's probably someone panicked. That that's is fine. actually fascinating because if you think about it, we knew about that telio anticipation thing. If you look at that photograph of Bob Dylan waiting for the Oust ferry, what? in yeah. I need to be on the next call. Okay. Rory, Uh, you'll see. They brilliantly. uh, Alongside the car
0: cue. Okay.
1: I'll leave you. I better leave you now. I'm sorry about this. No worries. See you later, Rory.
0: Thank you, brother. Bye-bye.